Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kitten. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our absolutely fantastic guest this week is an independent economic and political consultant. Pinkus Landau, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It is great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming. We've seen you talking about many different things uh, over the years, and we were so glad you could make it. For anyone who, unlike us, does not know who you are, just tell everybody, who are you? How have you come to be sitting in this chair? What's been your journey through life? Okay, very briefly. I was born in London um, uh, some years ago, uh, emigrated to Israel in 1976 after getting a degree from LSE. Uh, I've been living in Israel for all that time. Um, I have been working as an independent consultant for over 20 years, 22 years, something like that, in uh, macroeconomics, um, increasingly political risk analysis of Israel and the Middle East. Um, have always been very interested in current affairs, in history, in British and European history, uh, have been on and off at Kilconomics in Ireland for since it started in 2009, which is where we met. Mm. And I visit London frequently, usually three or four times a year, so I'm fairly plugged into what's going on here. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, being based in Jerusalem and the Middle East. As you said, just before we started the interview, it seems to be kicking off. And you said wherever you stick a pin on the map, something is happening. So give us a, a broad overview for people who are, I mean, it's going to take about half an hour just to, to, to give us a superficial view of it. But give us a, a broad overview of the things that are, are happening now in the Middle East. Okay, um, this is you know really complicated mm. and difficult. And broad overview, uh, you start with the fact that the dominant theme in the Middle East today is that there is a uh, uh, an intensifying struggle between the two key forms of Islam, which are Sunni Islam and Shiite Islam. And without going into the religion and the theology, what matters is that the Sunnis are the vast majority. Um, the key Sunni states are Egypt, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is important because uh, it is the site, or in Saudi Arabia, the sites of the key Muslim or Islamic uh, cities of Mecca, Medina, and the that's where the so Muhammad lived, and so on. Um, Shiite Islam is centered on Iran. Iran underwent a revolution in 1979 and uh, became uh, a Shiite theocracy, which means that it's run by religious leaders who have a very extreme version of Shiite Islam, which never existed in the past, and they are engaged in seeking to export their religious revolution throughout the Middle East, and that is causing a great deal of trouble pretty much everywhere. Uh, that is a broad overview. The second thing you need to know about the Middle East Today is that the mega event of the last decade is the strategic decision by the United States to not entirely withdraw, but to considerably downgrade the Middle East in the context of American foreign policy. It's began under Obama. It's been continued by Trump. It will, um, virtually everybody thinks that it will continue irrespective of who the next president is. So we're seeing a change, a fundamental change in American policy and what that means in, in very simple terms is that the sheriff has left town 
and that means that all the other players who were previously constrained by the existence and activity of the sheriff are now much less constrained. Mm. And where does Israel come into all of this? Israel is, um, interestingly, is much um, more sidelined by these developments, whereas if you go back to the 70s, 80s, now you go back to the 20th century, second half of the 20th century, the struggle between Israel and its neighbors and Israel and the Palestinians was very much at the center of Middle Eastern events. Um, this has changed very dramatically in the 21st century. So that Israel is um, much more on the sidelines. Israel-Palestine is far, far less important than it was in the view of pretty much everybody in the Middle East. Um, and uh, what we have seen in recent years is that Israel has um, strengthened considerably its relationship with many um, of the Sunni states, notably Egypt, now increasingly Saudi Arabia, albeit uh, still clandestinely, and other um, Persian Gulf states such as Oman and UAE. Um, so all of the countries which feel threatened by Iran, of which Israel is along with Saudi Arabia at the top of the list because the Iranian revolution has set uh, as its goal to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Um, so Israel has been engaged in a struggle with Iran for some decades, which has become much more intense in recent years. And consequently, Israel is finding um, common ground with many uh, of the Sunni states who are also threatened by Iran. So um, Israel's position has... Um, changed dramatically and in some senses become stronger because it is uh, part of a uh, regional uh, quasi-alliance. And why do you think that America supports this withdrawal in the Middle East? Because normally, you know, America had a very strong presence, like you said, but why is it now they're going, right, no more, we want out? Um, this is a reaction to, um, first and foremost, the invasion of Iraq, which proved to be a very, very costly mistake, costly in both the financial and human sense and in the political sense. Um, so um, after 9-11, Americans invaded Afghanistan, which seemed to go very well, but the object was to destroy the Taliban movement there, which they failed to do, and then uh, Bush for whatever reasons, decided to invade Iraq and um, remove the Saddam Hussein regime, which militarily was easily accomplished, but what then turned out was that they had no follow-up plan. So the Americans made very serious blunders in the first decade of this century, and in the current decade, what we've seen is a tremendous reaction to that on the part of the general public and most of the leadership. Um, uh, they don't see, they, they regret uh, some of the things they've done. They think they were counterproductive. And that's one way of putting it. <laughs> well, from a foreign policy perspective, very counterproductive. They did not achieve their, their goals yeah. um, in a strategic sense. Mm. And, um, and they, uh, look, it goes much deeper than that. Um, in American culture, um, the, the American culture is very black and white, as you've seen in very many contexts. And um, Americans tend to uh, say, okay, we're going to go in and do this or do something somewhere. And if it doesn't work, they leave. I'll give you a very um, um, yeah, 
different example, but it's, it's very indicative, right? In the 1990s, in the decade of the 1990s, Merrill Lynch, which was then the biggest brokerage company in the United States, twice decided to go into Canada, right? Not talking about somewhere far away. They decided to establish themselves in Canada. They did it. They said, no, somebody else came in. That's a mistake. We're losing money. We're leaving. A few years later, no, we really want to be in Canada. Went back into Canada. No, it's not working. Leave. It's a mindset which um, to Europeans is very strange, uh, very short-term, very kind of bottom-line oriented, but that's how they work. Mm. And Pincus, do you think it's also as well that the, the Americans swallowed this idea that you can import democracy everywhere? All you need to do, overthrow the regime, put in democracy, hey presto, you've got a democratic state. And what Iraq showed them is that this was a load of nonsense. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> See, um, I do get some things right. <laughs> Except looking at the wrong camera. Yeah. It's that one over there, mate. Looking for a camera think, to look into. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that, I'm that. definitely right. Oh, wait, it's over there. Um, well, because uh, one of the things I find interesting, you're talking about how Israel is essentially building relationships with the Sunni states. It's almost like you've got perfect multiculturalism uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you've got the Jews and the Muslims working together. Uh, you haven't got any anything perfect uh, in the Middle East, let alone multiculturalism. <laughs> um, the only place, arguably, in the Middle East where you have any kind of functional multiculturalism is in Israel, mm. where there's a large Muslim majority who are uh, um, increasingly integrated into the economy, finally, and are... Muslim minority, in, right? As a minority, yeah, 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 right, and yeah. in parliament and, and, and in the general, in the system and so on. Israel is the only country in the Middle East where the Christian minority is um, not only hanging in there, but actually thriving um, to, to some degree and not being driven out as it is in virtually every other country in the Middle East. So in many respects, um, multiculturalism insofar as it exists in the Middle East, uh, is is very much an Israeli phenomenon. And that's just in the kind of cultural, religious thing. Then, of course, you have the fact that gays in Israel are a clear uh, um, movement who, who are the, working for their rights and are accepted and so on, which is, again, stands in somewhat sharp contradistinction to the situation in many other countries. I love the way, the delicate <laughs> way in which you put that. Well, to, still, um, to put it more crudely, uh, they're not being thrown off buildings in Israel and like pretty much everywhere yes, else in the Middle East. Correct. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and you, yes, okay, we could go much further, but <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Pincus, why is it, right, I go on my Facebook timeline, many of whom uh, are populated by left-wing liberals, and they portray to me that Israel is a great evil of the world. Um, and the reason why the Middle East is so unstable. Why does Israel has this, have this reputation? And is it in any way justified? This is, now you're kind of digging deep, okay? <laughs> um, the sources of the left liberal deliberate misperception and mis, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the way it's presented, mispresentation of Israel, Israeli culture and so on, is um, a fascinating phenomenon um, because uh, if you go back 40 or 50 years, right, as, uh, in the 60s and 70s of previous um, century, uh, Israel was uh, one of the left's darlings um, for numerous reasons, but this has changed. Um, now, 
you know, we could spend, if you had six, seven hours, we could spend <laughs> a lot of time drilling down. Here. The, the but, number but, of viewers who would still be with us after the second hour, okay, it would so be the in the single digits. Line, from the Israeli point of view, and increasingly from the point of view of Jews across Europe, and indeed now in the United States, is that the left liberal demonization of Israel is uh, indistinguishable from anti-Semitism, and that... Um, it should be seen in that light. This is just a, a kind of modern version of, or an updated version of um, very lo- um, ancient anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, and, um, and this is a major issue and arguably the major issue facing Jewish communities throughout the Western world and nowhere more so than the United Kingdom where um, we have a, a formally mainstream social democratic party which was for many many years uh, um, uh, very had very strong and positive relations with the labor movement in israel um, has been taken over by the hard left and is now in the view of most people not just most jews most people in the uk is uh, overtly anti-semitic and they cover it up with this uh, sheen of no it's only about israel but you know, that we, no one uh, uh, accepts that anymore. So, um, you know, this is a major, major issue. Um, it is not anymore subject to rational analysis. In other words, we can go through all the facts and figures about the, um, you know, the things I was talking about, multiculturalism and, and, and many, many, right, economic and social and religious and on and on and on. And it doesn't make any difference because it's become a dogma um, and uh, that is a major problem. Mm. So you're of the view that the Labour movement has become anti-Semitic in this country? The Labour Party in the UK has become anti-Semitic. I mean, I'm just an observer, Mm. but you have seen the the, the writers and and other groups kind of make these proclamations and, 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 and I think that is now the mainstream view, as far as I can judge. Well, 87% of the Jewish Chronicle put out a poll recently saying that 87% of British Jews think that Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitic. Oh, well, that, yes. In other words, the Jews are convinced of it. Yes. Right? To the point that uh, many friends of mine are taking the line that, um, yes, I am remain, and I want Britain to remain in the EU, but that is no longer the issue. The issue is the need to vote against Corbyn and prevent Labour getting more more of their candidates in because Labour has, the Labour Party has uh, eliminated all its Jewish MPs um, and and in many cases put in uh, um, problematic candidates and therefore you will find that the entire Jewish community in this country is engaged to an extent that I've never seen before, right, with the rabbinic and lay leadership saying you've got to get out, you've got to vote Vote for whomever in your constituency has got the best chance of defeating the Labour candidate because Labour's anti-Semit. And this is accepted by everybody. Mm. So we're in an unprecedented uh, situation here. And when you think there is a strong tradition in the Jewish community of being Labour, left-leaning... Absolutely, absolutely. The majority of British Jews voted Labour. The older ones for 
reasons to do with a generation or two ago. The young ones are reasons to do with today's thing. But uh, absolutely right. Hmm. Oh, by the way, let me ask you this. Why do you think it is that Jews tended to vote for left-leaning parties? Because normally you expect a community that's thriving, that's economically quite successful. As people get wealthier, they tend to move towards the conservative end of the spectrum. Jews seem to be the exception to that trend. Is that no, fair to say? I mean, well, I, 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 first of all, I don't claim to have you know, real in-depth knowledge. Mm. But what I would say is that um, there has certainly been a very significant shift in others. I go back 50 years when I was a kid, so the percentage of Jews voting Labour was much higher than it would be today if if Tony Blair was a candidate. Um, so there has been a shift to do with moving up uh, on the socioeconomic rankings and so on. Nevertheless, having said that, um, uh, uh, there is still a very strong affinity and and uh, um, historic relationship with, with Labour, which has only been ruptured these last few years since Corbyn became leader. Mm. And coming back to the Middle East, um, one of the things that's happened recently, of course, is the change in Saudi Arabia uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salman taking over. He seems to be a whole new creature, if I can put it that way. And part of maybe a broader thing that we'll talk about, which is the emergence of these very strong men generally men, leaders around the world. What do you make of him and the impact that he might have on, on the Middle East? He, um, well, the, he is having a major impact in many respects, many different ways. So within Saudi Arabia, he is leading a push towards greater social uh, liberalization. But at the same time, he has and is behaved and behaving like a, um, a medieval monarch. Uh, the, Saudi Arabia is, me, is a medieval country. It's, it's important to understand that. And you know, can't judge it by any um, Western standards because they're, they're just not relevant. So if you know your history in Britain, France, and so on, you know, medieval British history with King Henry's and John and Richard and uh, you know, all the stuff. So you had a king who was uh, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker. You had barons and lords and so on around the country, and each of these guys really ran their own fief in the medieval system. And the king would try to get uh, um, taxes in terms of money, in terms of produce, and uh, if he needed to go to war, then he would say, you know, you've got to supply so many men, in, and you, right? So it wasn't the king ran the whole country. It was very much... Um, decentralized. De uh, and if you apply that model to Saudi Arabia, you have some understanding of what's going on. Right? He, even though he is the king, uh, uh, he has difficulty imposing his ideas on the entire royal family, which is a very large and complex um, um, group of people. Uh, and beyond that, there are many, there are tribes. And these tribal units together comprise the Saudi army and the armed forces. Um, and there are business entities, business groups. Uh, one of the most famous is the Bin Laden family. Who yeah, they're pretty famous. Came, came, to prominence, <laughs> came to prominence because one of them decided not to pursue a business career, but went in a different direction. But they are very big. Uh, um, commercially oriented family, right? Mm. Nothing to do with uh, terrorism aspect. So Saudi Arabia is a very complex place, and he is trying to wrench it out of where it was, 
socially and particularly economically reliant on oil and so on, and force it in a different direction. And that is very difficult to do in a very conservative country. And, um, and he's doing this whilst being, whilst being engaged in what is a, a very deep-seated uh, um, struggle against Iran and Shiite uh, Islam. Um, and he's doing it with the American defense umbrella and fading away. And so he has enormous problems, um, apart from those stemming from the fact that he's young and immature and so on. He has objective problems. And going to Israel at the moment, uh, back there, by the way, you might not know this, one of the most offensive things about Osama bin Laden, do you know this? He used to be an Arsenal fan. Massive <laughs> Arsenal fan. One of the main reasons I disliked him. Anyway, but... Uh, you didn't have any other problems with him? You were just, that yeah, was the yeah, main yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> he's one of Arsenal season ticket holder. He used to live just around the corner from there. Anyway, yeah. um, but there is a major figure in Israeli politics at the moment who's in a little bit of bother. Could you explain what the charges are against him and what the impact that's going to be if he's found guilty on the Israeli state? Okay. Uh, I love the way you sigh before answering every question because we're asking you these big questions about a region that you would probably need a, a three-month lecture series to address and we're giving you about five seconds to do it. Yeah, but it, it makes life much easier because um, you have to kind of compress it into sound bites mm. um, and you'll have to take your leave as it were, right? Because each one of these... So... Um, Netanyahu's uh, long political career and long career as prime minister, he's been prime minister for over 10, ten and a half years um, non-stop, and before that he was prime minister for two or three years, uh, so we've now reached the end of the road. Now, you want me to relate to the legal stuff and the charges and this and that and the other, but I regard all that as very secondary. Um, he has been indicted finally on a bunch of charges, which any or all of which could be found guilty or not guilty, etc. And nobody's going to wait for that to legal process to play out. Um, Netanyahu, in political terms, has uh, passed his sell-by date. Um, for many reasons, um, the most obvious of which is that he's been in power over 10 years, uh, the Israeli most of the Israeli public is tired of him. Um, they're extremely tired of his wife. That's a <laughs> separate story, but it's very, very important. The, um, she's an eminence Greek. She has enormous power over him and control. And she is involved in many, many um, political decisions. Um, so um, he is now. As I said, at the end of the road, um, what is important is that this year, right, let's just not go through the whole thing. This year, there have been two elections, neither of which he won. He did fairly well, but he didn't win, and he wasn't able to put together, to reestablish a coalition which he would lead. Sounds a bit like British politics <laughs> over the last nine years, doesn't okay, it? Okay, <laughs> but uh, British politics are neophytes in this um, coalition <laughs> stuff, right? Uh, uh, in Israel, it's, it's the norm. Yeah. Ah, uh, so his political power has considerably been constrained and it is waning and he is going downhill. Mm. Um, what is important now, now means today, this week, because of the 
technicalities and complications of the constitutional and political situation is that they're in order to get rid of him and save themselves, the senior Likud people need to find somebody else who may basically make a putsch, depose him and bring in somebody else. And they're trying to muster the guts to do that. But it's very difficult. He's very entrenched. He's got a lot of loyalists and so on. Um, if that doesn't happen this week or next week, then Israel will be doomed to have a third election within 12 months. But Likud will very likely do pretty badly, or worse even than they did last, they lose more seats. And so Netanyahu is on the way out. That's the bottom line, however you slice and dice it. And the legal stuff is of relevance, but, um, you know, whether he's found guilty and whether he goes to jail, that's way down the road. That's not important. Let's not dive too deep into that. And plus, mm. by the time this video goes out, we will know what has actually happened. So we'll, we'll see yes. if, if those forecasts are accurate. But if we take a broader step back and talk about the strong men leaders, there seems to, am I right in saying that around the world we have seen a trend of consolidation of power in China? You know, Donald Trump is a very, I mean, in this country, we've got a competition of beta males. But apart from that, <laughs> uh, apart from that, we, we do seem to have this around the world. Obviously, Putin is very strong right now. And all around the world. Do you, do you see a trend there? And if you do, what is it, what, what is it caused by? Um, yes, there's clearly a trend, and it's a trend only in certain areas and not in others. Um, so that, right? Uh, Netanyahu is an interesting example. Just in the Middle East, in the immediate area, right? And the Middle East is a, is a region where you always had uh, strong men. Mm. Um, the late unlamented Saddam Hussein and the late unlamented um, Mr. Gaddafi, and so on and so on. Um, but currently you have in Egypt a President al-Sisi who uh, is a military leader who deposed the Muslim Brotherhood uh, government uh, uh, in 2013. You have Mr. Erdogan in Turkey who has won power going back a long time but has basically um, eliminated, pushed out all his rivals and has become terribly authoritarian and made himself president and so on. Netanyahu is also a, a good example, if only for the fact that he's been in power for 10 years. He's longer than any other Israeli prime minister, and he has won a series of elections and so on. You have Mr. Modi in India, which is a democratic country, and he has you know, not only just won elections, but he's presented a very different approach to national leadership. Uh, and Mr. Abe in Japan who is uh, also uh, an elected leader, very similar to Netanyahu in, in interesting ways. Uh, I put it to the Japanese uh, people that I met. Right? Imagine a prime minister who was prime minister for a short time, and he wasn't a good, he wasn't a success, and he lost power. And then he, a decade later, he managed to return to power, and he's been in power for a very long time. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> and they, the Japanese, are forced to crack a smile and say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> they immediately identify with Abe when well, I'm talking about Netanyahu, but it's yeah. very um, remarkably similar. Well, it's very remarkable in itself. It's like John Major coming out of retirement now and, and leading the Tories no, to... They're, they're not that old. I mean, <laughs> it's... it's um, 
it's Gordon Neil Brown, Tony then. Blair. Gordon yeah. Well, Brown. Gordon, Tony right. Blair was very successful, of course, but yeah. Gordon Brown yeah. maybe. Yeah, right. It's like Gordon Brown <laughs> being re-established as the uh, yeah. British job for Scottish workers. He comes back with that. Fantastic. That's a good job. That's, Scots don't like working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great Rory Bremner line. Uh, so, so this so is you happening. Have this phenomenon, yes. right? So why and is it if happening? You like, if you why like, is it happening? Mrs. Merkel was was also of that ilk. Strong man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, seemingly. So why is it happening? Mm. The simple answer, and simple answers are usually very helpful and, and largely right is because in the wake of the great financial crisis of 2008, people came to the conclusion that what they had been told and sold was a load of crap. And they wanted people who were giving them some kind of message of uh, um, that, that made sense to them. And in many countries, and this is the theme that links Putin, Modi, Abe, Erdogan, Netanyahu, at least all of those, and Orban in uh, Hungary, and others, and Trump. Mm. The theme of um, make it, whatever it is, great again, right? Restore Russia and, and make Japan a serious country again. Right? The same theme runs in country after country, and the people who um, who promoted these this theme, this idea, have done phenomenally well. So that shows that that's what people wanted and why they want that. Because, as you said, I think, uh, they came to the conclusion that um, what had been accepted as the right and proper thing to do was at least not working and maybe wasn't of any use anyway. And do you think part of it as well is the fact that, like, you listen to Americans talk and a lot of Europeans, they seem to be this general consensus of, you know, the best days of America are over, the best days of Europe are over. And all of a sudden you've got this person come in going, no, that's not, that's not true. That's a load of nonsense. I'm going to make America great again. Sod what these liberals think. Let's go forth. What Steve Bannon calls the managed decline. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then, yeah, managed decline is a very, very fascinating concept. Mm. Um, but it's complicated, right? There are countries that are in inexorable decline, like Japan, which um, they're trying to turn it around. Um, there are countries that are not in decline, like India, uh, the absolute opposite of decline. Um, but they perceive themselves as um, you know, needing strong leadership and, and the Congress party or whatever, whoever it is has failed and so on. And then, of course, you have the extreme example of Russia, where Putin has succeeded in not just arresting, but reversing some of the most dramatic uh, um, um, trends of decline and and weakness and so on. Um, And people respond to that, absolutely. Uh, And Trump is giving the same rhetoric. But, uh, well, of course, whether to what extent, if at all, that's true is a different matter. Mm. Do, do you think it's true that he is restoring America's greatness? Um, there's very little evidence, shall we say, very little evidence. And a man who judges his domestic economic success by the level of the Dow Jones uh, industrial averages, skating on very thin ice. Mm. And you, you're not one of these people who've got what we were talking about as Trump derangement syndrome. You, you, you're quite open-minded, I think, about some of the stuff. But you don't buy his economic uh, boasts about how the economy is doing? 
well, I certainly wouldn't buy his boasts. Um, uh, I mean, in other words, if you did a massive tax cutting exercise and you gave lots of money to certain areas, then you would expect the economy to do most of the things that it did in 2018 and that are fading away in 2019. Um, so most of the serious people who might read who are not um, um, uh, victims of Trump derangement syndrome think that the American economy is doing badly and it's going downhill and there will be a recession and so on and so forth. Um, the problem, of course, with Trump, as you correctly point out, is that it's very difficult to find people who are capable of having a rational discussion. <laughs> In other words, um, and the flip side is, is, uh, is with Putin as well. So, um, and that goes to Netanyahu with the kind of people you were talking about earlier, right? So, my job, as it were, as a, uh, as a, as an analyst and a consultant is to bring a, uh, an objective assessment of what is going on. And in every one of these cases, whether it's Trump or Putin or Netanyahu or Modi or whomever you like, right? So you can say, you know, these are his achievements. Mm. And these are the areas where he failed, and each one of those open to discussion. So do that but for us, the, Pinkus, yeah. with Trump. But, do that for us. What's your objective, rational assessment of his achievements and his downfalls? And by the way, that sound you can hear is YouTube having a meltdown. He's <laughs> 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 <In> fucking <A. laughs> um, First, um, okay, Trump's main achievement globally is that... Um, I mean, it's very difficult because he screwed up a lot of things, but um, he has, I think, okay, you know, without going to the whole global thing, right, he has kicked the Europeans so hard that they are now thinking and acting differently, right? That's a wonderful example, right? So many people over the years have said the Europeans are slackers and they don't pull their weight and they just live under our defense umbrella and they don't want to spend any money and so on and so on. Have too many naps. Yeah. <laughs> right? And Trump came and uh, screamed at them and kicked them in the balls and now they're actually doing things. Um, now, it's certainly possible to argue that his style and all the rest of it are counterproductive. But here is an example where they've been very productive um, at fairly great cost. Um, Trump is asphyxiating Iran. This is a very, very important thing, which is not well understood at all. Um, even whilst he is withdrawing from the Middle East, everything is complicated, right? So people are talking about America's withdrawing from the Middle East. Trump cut and ran from Syria to a couple of months ago. American power in the Middle East today is orders of magnitude greater than that of Russia, which is deeply involved in the Middle mm. East with bases and so on and so on. They don't even begin to compare. So the American withdrawal and retreat in terms of actual power has got much more uh, uh, assets than, than the Russians do and so on. So the real issue, of course, is are you prepared to use them in what form? And Trump is very clearly made, right, we're not having boots on the ground, we're not going to have our guys killed, and so we'll just blow up other people and, and that. But in the case of Iran, where, by the way, Trump's policy 
is not one of tweets and not one of uh, uh, um, you know, ideas that he thought of in the bath. Whatever Trump's attitude and uh, uh, policy towards Iran is consistent, going way back when he was president, before he was president, before he was a candidate, before he even thought of being a candidate. It goes back many, many years. And his use of American economic power vis-a-vis Iran is phenomenal. Right, so that, for instance, not just the Europeans, but the Chinese oil companies have cut and left. Because no economic entity in the world, given a choice between losing the American market and losing the Iranian market, <laughs> there's no choice. It's no. Not, there's nothing to talk about. Right. So he is asphyxiating, which means he's strangling the Iranian economy. And that's why there are riots in Iran and, and putting tremendous pressure on the regime. Um, so, you know, you can go down and list... What about China? Chinese are scared. They don't know what to do. Mm. And one of Trump's great achievements is that he has exposed, he has raised to the surface the existence of a very broad consensus in the American business community that we've had enough of China. Mm. We are fed up with their stealing our IP and cheating us and not letting us in and so on. And we are really pissed off about this. And until Trump, it was not possible to talk about that because it was impolite. And now it is okay. And every, the whole, not the whole, but massive consensus within the American business and financial community supports Trump's approach towards China, and it will roll over to the next president, almost irrespective of whom that is. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the achievements that you can give him credit for. In order that people don't assume you're a massive Trump fan and you want to make... (laughs) At this point, we unfurl the American banner behind you. The cap comes down. God bless America. (laughs) We're going to get you a golden toilet uh, just to to celebrate. What are some of the weaknesses of his presidency? What are some of the the dangers? I mean, obviously, the the tax cut doesn't sound like you're a big fan of that. No, I mean, Trump has simply um, extended the policy of funneling more and more money to the top 1%, 0.1%, 1%, 0.1%, whatever you want to call it. Um, the great beneficiaries of the tax cut have been the rich, the ultra-rich, and the corporations. Who are, and he has done virtually nothing for the poor slobs who voted for him, right? How many jobs have gone back to America? Now, as against that, the employment figures are very good, right? They, uh, uh, America has very low unemployment, etc., etc. But that is true of most European countries, most of the Western economy has record low unemployment. Uh, and clearly, um, that is not connected to Trump's policies. It's a much broader phenomenon. So, you know, Trump has not done very much uh, in terms of making America great again. Um, he has considerably uh, intensified, maybe even caused or con- have contributed to the tensions within American society, ethnic, racial, etc. But, um, I mean, you could just go on and on, right? The, 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 if, if you have a, reached a point where the Russians can say, with regard to Trump's SMS or tweet, or perhaps even it was a diplomatic telegram of the good old school, right? He sent a message to Erdogan, uh, I, President Erdogan of Turkey, 
telling him in so many words what he thought of him and so on, right? And the Russians said that this is not acceptable <laughs> diplomatic <laughs> behavior. Yeah. Um, so, right, so he's ripped up the rule book on how you uh, conduct foreign relations. And he has also gutted most parts of the American government, notably the State Department, and many others as well, where there are literally hundreds and hundreds of important positions which have not been filled. Mm. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, this is not how to run a country. Mm. Well, if the Russians are setting the moral standards, <laughs> you know, your country's pretty fucked, isn't it? Uh, but uh, look, look, if I'm an ordinary Trump voter, uh, I, I kind of look at the official slogans of what's happening, right? He seems to be addressing the border security issue, right? He's trying to build... A fence, maybe not a wall, but a fence. The economy is booming, right? A big, beautiful wall. A big, beautiful fence, right? <laughs> the economy is booming. He's killed al Baghdadi, right? He's dest- he's destroyed ISIS. I'm I'm using all of this kind of slightly in inverted commas, but these are certainly the claims that he'd make. I mean, you go. He's standing up to China. You know, that sounds to me like him delivering on his promises, doesn't it? No, this is all grandstanding. This mm. is all um, uh, a, a show. Right, like meeting with uh, the Rocket Man, right? Rocket Man, yeah. who's upgraded <laughs> to my dear friend, yeah, yeah. whatever his name is, and so on with, with right, North Korea. He oscillates uh, pretty quickly between calling someone like the worst person ever and his and best he, friend. Yeah. Right. So, so, right. So, this is not a serious person, and 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 most of what he does is is not serious, and in the best case is is unhelpful, and in many cases extremely harmful, particularly in the longer term. Um, and, you know, you compare that to some of the, um, I mean, again, you're talking about Trump supporters, right? Mm. The Trump supporters means people in Pennsylvania and Ohio uh, and Wisconsin who um, who turned the election, right? Mm. And if Trump has any claim to genius and, and all the rest of it, it's simply because he understood that there are these few states which are going to turn everything, and if he can win them, Democrats will lose and he will win, although he didn't expect to win. Um, but he, that was how his strategy was built. And Hillary Clinton was the most appalling candidate, did not visit Wisconsin from the Wisconsin primary through the election, and therefore cannot have any um, <laughs> uh, claim to, to, to unhappiness that she, you know, she didn't win Wisconsin. Well, she did say recently she, she's going to win again. She's going to win again, she right. said. Traditionally, yeah. <laughs> Democratic state, which she blew. Mm. But so your Trump supporters in Youngstown, Ohio. Mm. Um, so they want jobs. They want their lives back. They want the, the opioid epidemic. Mm. And they have a long series of things. They have not been. Those issues have not been addressed, and their well-being is not significantly uh, improved. Mm. Um, there are. Among the American, among the Democratic candidates, people with ideas which would significantly improve the lives and well-being of people like that. Who? Who? Which candidates? Certainly, um, Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the others as well, right? I mean, uh, in others, the problem is that some of them are, may, are are really far out. Bernie Sanders is very far out, and and. Some of Warren's stuff is very far out, but Warren at least is a very rational, mainstream person, right? She's a senator, she's been around, and she was a professor, and she comes from a very working-class background, and, and she has actually thought through these things, that so she doesn't spout slogans, 
right? And she would do a lot which would benefit the people who vote for Trump because by voting for Trump they are expressing their disgust at what the Washington elite has done to them for decades. Mm. Right? There are people on the other side who would do that and Trump would do nothing for them has done and will do nothing for them. They're, insofar as they're benefiting, there are jobs available, uh, not good quality jobs, right? There are jobs available um, uh, more than there were, but this is, a, this is a cyclical boom, right? To use the economic terminology, this is a cyclical boom, and uh, we are heading for a massive crash, um, and they are totally unprepared and vulnerable. And why are they vulnerable, Pincus? Because their healthcare system is a disaster. Their pension system is on the verge of collapse. They, they as a, a population, have do not have the skills they need. They are un- uneducated, um, etc., etc. Right? That'll be the clip we we'll use. Americans are uneducated. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the data. You know, the jury's in the data are yeah. there, right? Uh, uh, and there's nothing to the reason. You know, the United States is a very big country. It's mm. got 300 million people, and they still have the top hospitals and the top this, that, and the other. And that's fine if you're at the top, but for the bottom. 50%. It's really bad news. And there are great swathes in the United States that are third world countries. And Jim Rickards made the point as well that there is this massive problem with student loans. Yes. Well, that, that is a very specific issue, um, which is A, that people who have finished their degrees and so on are buried under these massive loans. But more substantively, more and more people are getting a, a, a supposed education, which is a very little real value to them. But on the other side of the balance sheet, they emerge from it with significant um, financial debts, which they are going to carry with them and you know, be lucky to pay off at all. And so, so they've got little assets in terms of what did they get out of their education and plenty of uh, liabilities. Yeah, they spend a hundred grand to get a gender studies degree. Yeah. Well, quite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Right, well, Pinkus, unfortunately, our time is almost up. You're a busy man. We've got to let you go. So before we do that, we've got one more question for you. And the question always is, what's the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be talking about? Demography and having children. Okay. Tell us more. The, well, everybody in the West, the whole of Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, more even than Western Europe, suffering from demographic decline, right? We talked about Putin. Putin managed to stop the rot and he's brought it back somewhat so people are beginning to have children and they're not dying at the age of 48 from liver malfunction, from drinking too much vodka, right? So Putin's <laughs> got some very, very serious achievements within Stop Russia. laughing at my heritage. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it really isn't funny. I mean, Putin's got yeah, genuine, see, it's not funny, mate. genuine achievements um, along with... Right? Um, so the big... Now the United States is... is it, Incredibly, I mean, 10 years ago, it would not have been possible to think. The United States is now in serious demographic decline. Um, the people we were talking about, the Trump voters, they don't have children. They, uh, they die young. Right? American uh, um, life expectancy is going down and so on and so on. Right? So the, the developed world is facing uh, uh, a demographic crisis. Now, you can argue the same is true in China and so on, but, but Europe, North America, Japan, South Korea, and so on. These are countries in very serious 
demographic uh, um, uh, crisis, whatever you want to call it, which, by the way, is why the pension system is going bust, or one of the main reasons. Um, and having children has gone out of fashion. Um, and people have very good arguments, why they can't afford it and so on, but that simply brings you back to government, right? You can have policies that remove some of the obstacles to having children, right? That doesn't mean everybody will have children. Most of these policies don't work because of other factors. But people who want to have children say, I can't have another child because the cost of you know, child care and so on, right? The woman won't go out to work, she'll stay at home, etc. Right? That whole syndrome, two parents both, uh, or two two income families, right? And so if you're only down to one, you're, you're already on the borderline. These things can be addressed. Uh, now, you can argue that all the efforts so far, whether it's in Japan or France or wherever, they haven't succeeded. But um, given that this is literally existential, uh, you would expect that it would um, concentrate considerably more attention on the part of policymakers and voters, and yet it doesn't. Well, there you go. So stop using contraception and have as much sex as possible. That is our message for this week at Trigonometry. Uh, Pincus Landau, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate thank your you time. Very much. Uh, as always, follow us at TriggerPod, and we'll see you again in a week's time with another brilliant episode. Take care. See you next week, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.